Very cool. Welcome once more, or sorry about sort of the cramped conditions here. Uh, We'll do our best to have more chairs next week. How about that? All right. Here we go. We are moving through the book of Judges, and this morning we come to the fourth and final message in our series here. This is called The Power of Friendship, The Power of Friendship, and it's taken from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 8 through 21, and then chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. So sort of the bookends of the story. Here we go. You can follow on the screen or in your Bible or in your Bible app. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's God's word this morning. And we come now to the end of our time in the book of Judges, which if you're just joining us, tells of a transitionary period in Israel's history between the time of the Exodus and Moses, and on the other end, the time of the kings and the monarchy, Saul and David and so forth. And we come this morning to what I would imagine is sort of a surprising conclusion. Why, after all this, would we be here in Ruth? Well, the progression of the book of Judges goes like this. First, as we've seen, the book shows us good judges, then it shows us bad judges, and Last week we saw the dark, tragic, and almost hopeless end of the book where there is no judge at all. As a matter of fact, if we were to end there and we were to end our series there, a dark ending it would be. But thankfully, the Bible actually doesn't end the time of the judges there and therefore neither will we because what follows the book of Judges is the book of Ruth, which takes place during the time of the judges but doesn't show us a good judge, a bad judge, or even no judge at all. But it points us to something else, 
a hidden and unforeseen judge who will come, but not just as a judge, but as a redeemer king, the redeemer king our hearts and lives truly need. So this morning, let's see how the book of Ruth in three ways shows us that redeemer king. We're going to look this morning first at friendship's power, next at Ruth's risk, and finally, redemption's hiddenness. Let's begin with number one here, the power of friendship. Let me, let me recap the story, and then we'll go from there. Now, during the time of the judges, there was a severe famine that broke out in the southern part of Israel, and a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons are forced to leave their home, relocate to a foreign country named Moab in order to survive. While they were there, the two sons married two Moabite women. And not long after that, though, Elimelech and his two sons died, leaving Naomi and her, and her two Moabitess daughters-in-law alone and destitute. Naomi, one of her daughters-in-law named Ruth, returned back to Naomi's old home in Bethlehem with little prospects of survival. But as Ruth goes out to glean surplus grain in the fields of a local wealthy landowner named Boaz, Boaz sees Ruth risking everything to provide for her destitute mother-in-law, and his heart is turned. As it turns out, he, Boaz, was a distant relative of Naomi's family, a person called the Goel the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the the title of a person who could, at his own cost, buy back the land of the destitute family, give up his own name, marry into the family, and then have children to continue the family line in the name of a deceased relative. Boaz does this against all odds. He marries Ruth, and together, we read, they have a son who, in fact, was the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David. It's a great story, but all of this never would have happened. Matter of fact, it never would have unfolded without something that's easily overlooked, even in hindsight. What is it? Well, put it simply like this. It was the power of a friendship. The power of a friendship. Hear this. Hear me out. Friendship is the most powerful force in the world. Nations rise and fall on friendships, don't they? They do. Kingdoms come and go based on friendships that are failed or faithful. The best businesses, you know this, the best churches, especially the best marriages, are built around great friendships. Think of uh, great friendships throughout history. Think of David and Jonathan in the Bible. Right? Think of Dr. Martin Luther King and Ralph David Abernathy. Think of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Or, or think of great friendships in literature that have moved hearts throughout the centuries. There's Hamlet and Horatio. There's you know, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Think of great friendships even in our modern popular culture of Bert and Ernie, for example. Kirk and Spock. Or, you know, my favorite and yours, the Fresh Prince and Carlton. You know, they, they changed the world together. The power of friendship is something that can, it will shape, it can change a person's life. After all, we should ask, what's happened to Ruth here in chapter 1? Well, her husband, a man named Kilion, had passed away, leaving her widowed and childless. And yet, when given a choice to go back to her father's house, her own people, her own gods, remarry again, have a life, what does she do? Well, in one of the most moving speeches in the Bible, she turns and says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, she says this, we've read it, we're going to read it again, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. There I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, again, what's happening to Ruth? Well, she is not just 
professing loyalty to her mother-in-law, although she is doing that. But there is more going on here. What you are hearing here, what you're seeing here is radical. She, think about it, she's a Moabitess woman. She's been raised to worship Chemosh and the other Moabite gods. And here she is renouncing them and choosing to follow Yahweh, the one true God. And you can see it when she says, she uses the name the Lord there. It's the the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the love name of God, the name of God that only people who had made a covenant with that God to serve him would dare take upon their lips. See, Ruth here is being converted. You're seeing a conversion. She is converting to faith in the one true God. This is amazing. Now, before we see why this happened, let me just address a thought here for a moment that may be striking some of you. You know, our, our modern culture says, certainly every college student knows this at UT and across the campus, across the world, really, that this is the one thing that you must not say. You, you must not say, ought, you shouldn't say, that someone ought to be or needs to be converted. Right? Our modern culture screams at us. You hear it all the time. We feel it. You must not make exclusive truth claims. Uh, in this past year, for example, just to show you how pervasive this is, uh, continuing a, t- a trend across many college campuses and universities, the University of Vanderbilt, where I've personally ministered several times, Vanderbilt University formally banned 14 openly Christian groups kicked them off campus, who required their leaders to affirm basic Christian doctrine like the resurrection and a faith in one true God. Now, a lady named Tish Warren was a campus minister at Vanderbilt whose group was shut down by the university. And what she found and what she wrote about was this, and this was her perspective about the situation. She said, in effect, the new policy about not allowing groups to meet who had a, a certain creedal code. The new policy privileged certain belief groups and forbade all others. Religious organizations were welcome as long as they were malleable, as long as their leaders didn't need to profess anything in particular, as long as they could be governed by sheer democracy and adjust to popular mores or trends, as long as they didn't prioritize theological stability. When I met with the assistant dean of students, she welcomed me warmly and seemed surprised that my group would be affected by the new policy. I told her I was a woman in the ordination process, that my husband was a PhD candidate in Vanderbilt's religion department, and that we loved the university. There was an air of hope that we could work things out. But as I met with other administrators, the tone began to change. The word discrimination began to be used a lot, specifically in regard to creedal requirements. It was lobbed like a grenade to end all argument. Administrators compared Christian students to 1960s segregationists. I once mustered courage to ask them if they truly thought it was fair to equate racial prejudice with asking Bible study leaders to affirm the resurrection. The vice chancellor replied, creedal discrimination is still discrimination. As a private university, she concluded, Vanderbilt had the right to adopt particular beliefs and exclude certain religious groups. What bothered me was that they didn't own up to what they were doing. I wanted them to be truthful, to say in their brochure, if you are a creedal religious person, don't expect to find a campus group here. I wanted intellectual honesty and transparency about their presuppositions. Instead, top officials seemed blind to their assumptions, insisting all religious groups were welcome while gutting our ability to preserve defining beliefs and practices. So, what's Vanderbilt saying here, right? They're, they were saying that people who said others need to be converted or people who believe in exclusive truth are bad, right? They ought not to be on campus. But, of course, the ultimate irony of this is that Vanderbilt 
excludes now more than Christians ever did. The Christian groups will allow non-Christians to be part of their groups, but Vanderbilt won't even allow Christians to meet on campus who hold to faith, ultimately the one true God. In an effort to get rid, right, of the people who believe people ought to be converted, now Vanderbilt forcibly converts students to their belief or excludes them for not converting to Vanderbilt's belief. Now here's the point, and you're wondering when it was coming, here it is, all right. Every person, every group, you've got exclusive beliefs about God or faith somehow. The question is, though, which exclusive belief produces radical, loving inclusivity? Well, let's look at Ruth's story to answer the question. She has just renounced her gods and everything about her own life. She's been converted, taking the name of the one true God upon her lips. What could have brought that about? Hmm? It was this, seeing a radical act of selfless love. A radical act of selfless love. You say, well, where is that? Ah, verse 15. Naomi said, look to Ruth, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now, did you catch what Naomi did? See, Naomi here is destitute. She is on the lowest rung of her culture in that day. She is an elderly, widowed woman with no children to provide for her. Her late husband had already mortgaged her ancestral land, leaving her no means of financial provision, even when she moves back. She is destitute, devastated. Her only relationship in the world is Ruth. Ah, her only hope is that Ruth would come back with her and help her survive, but Naomi doesn't try to cajole Ruth into coming back, doesn't try to manipulate her into converting to faith in the one true God. No, Naomi commits her life to an almost certain death sentence, yet at the same time, she puts Ruth's life and needs and future ahead of her own. And look at what she doesn't say. She doesn't just say, hey, Ruth, you know, go back to your gods and may they bless you because, you know, your gods are just like my God. It's kind of all the same and it doesn't really matter. No, no, no. Naomi maintains her conviction in the one true God, but radically and inclusively loves Ruth, the pagan idol worshiper, at the cost, potentially, of her own life. See? And when Ruth sees that, when she sees Naomi, who has nothing, clinging to God, despite all that's happened to her, she converts. And then what's the first thing she does? Oh, she in turn clings to Naomi, right? And by the end of the book, we read that Naomi, oh, it's so beautiful, excuse me, Ruth has gone on to love her mother-in-law, Naomi, so deeply that the other women in the town gather around Naomi. This is what they say to her. They say, oh, your daughter-in-law, it's a person who loves you. And is better to you than seven sons. That's a way of saying a person who had the perfect family, the most sons in the world, sons were prioritized. No, that couldn't stack up to one female, one daughter like Ruth. What had happened? Naomi's exclusive commitment to the one true God had produced in her a radical, loving inclusivity that she lived out with the people around her, no matter the cost to her. Are you and I doing that? And Ruth was so changed by her sacrificial love that she in turn laid her life down for the old woman with no future. See, both of them, loving God and each other sacrificially, redeemed the life of the other. That's the power of friendship. That's the power of friendship. Let me ask you, do you want a friendship like that? I don't know about you, I'm in, right? Unfortunately, if you haven't noticed, they're not exactly being handed out on the street corner. 
Now, being sold like Girl Scout cookies, I wish. They don't come easy. So let me tell you what it's going to take. It's going to take this number two. It's going to take some risk. Thinking, whoo, I was winning. Thankfully, we're getting to that risk part. Morgan couldn't wait to come to church and hear about how I get to risk. All right, but we're here anyway, so let's move on. Throughout the book, we see the person of Ruth risking her life again and again, and, and specifically in two ways Ruth risks. First, in gritty relationship, and then in what we'll call godly realism. First, there's gritty relationship. Now, what do I mean? I mean this. The basis of any great friendship you'll ever have, any great relationship in your marriage, the basis of it is the one word used to describe Ruth's approach to relating Naomi. It was this. It's the word determined. We see this when Naomi realized that Ruth was what? Was what? Determined, yeah. Determined to go with her, right? In other words, Ruth had determined. She pre-committed. She pre-decided that no matter what happened, Naomi, she'd go with her as long as it wasn't away from God. So again, let's ask, do you have relationships like this? Do you? Well, how do you know? Well, let me ask you, are your relationships based on what others can do for you or your relationships based on what you can bring to the table in friendship? See, most of us move out into relationships, out in the world, out even into a local church asking, who's going to reach out to me? See, who's going to look out for me? Who's going to meet my needs? See, you know what? And we should hear, man, this church should, we ought to do our best. We do. God knows we do our best. But what if? What if we don't? See, what if no one reaches out to you? See, Ruth is so unlike us Americans today. She is the ultimate non-consumer when it comes to friendships. She's not in the relationship for anything Naomi can do for her because Naomi can do nothing for her. She's got nothing to give, right? But Ruth is determined to love and befriend them no matter the cost. But let's just ask, how did she do it? I mean, after all, they got nothing in common. Nothing in common, right? Ruth's young, Naomi's old, right? Nothing in common except their poverty. They're from different cultures, different countries, different faith backgrounds, but they do it. They're from the wrong side of the tracks for each other, but they persevere. How? Well, it's because of, hear me, because of what they never said. Now, here's what great people and people who are great in relationships in the long run never say. They never say this. You just don't know what it's like to be me. (laughs) How many guys ever heard somebody say that to you before? You just don't know what it's like to be me, right? Yeah. I mean, you said that before. Don't raise your hand. Okay. (laughs) That's a conversation killer. You can't go on after That's a relationship killer. That's a friendship ender. My wife and I, Carrie, we've committed to never saying that to one another. It's actually a kind of a ridiculously obvious statement. When you think about it, you don't know what it's like to be me. That's like saying, the sun will rise today. And therefore, we can't get along. No. Listen, the sun is going to rise, and no one will ever know what it's like to be you. Matter of fact, the Bible acknowledges this. In Proverbs 14, it says, Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy. It's a way of saying that no one knows what it's like to be you. And it's true. Again, if Carrie, if Carrie were to say to me, We can go no further in our relationship because you don't know what it's like to be me, a woman. Well, there's only one way for me to overcome that obstacle. And I ain't going there. It's not doing that. And the same goes across the board in every kind of factor, you know, educationally, socioeconomically, racially. No one will ever know what it's like to be you. It's all true. So what can we say instead and be great at relationships? Well, we can say instead what Ruth said. Where you go, I'll go. 
Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Oh, it's brilliant. She's not saying you have to understand me. She's saying I am going to understand you, right? She doesn't wait for Naomi to move into her world. She moves into Naomi's world. And years ago, I had to do this when I began as a campus missionary at the University of Texas and our group began to be filled by people, African-Americans, converting to faith in Christ. And I had to learn about a new people. I had to start listening to new kinds of music I was unfamiliar with. And, you know, I'm going to name drop here some of the artists that, you know, I kind of got weaned on. I was exposed to, you know, some of you may have heard of Brandy or, you know, Monique or um, what's it, TLC. Um, uh, Destiny's Child. There used to be a group called Destiny's Child. You see new shows and movies. And, you know, I began to do this and imbibe it so much. I found, thankfully, against all odds, after time, after a long while, I actually began to have this kind of little James Brown on the inside of me who was telling me to get on up during worship. And, you know, I tend, I keep them suppressed I, so I don't scare the kids in here, you know. And you get the point, see. I had to make someone else's people, my people. See, another kind of culture, my culture. I had to move into another world. See, stop waiting for someone to understand you. It'll never happen. You go understand someone else. Ruth did this, and we're talking about it today. Orpah, her sister-in-law, by contrast, walked away, decided, you know what, there's too much risk for me here, and we never hear about her again. See, what about you? Is there someone you know God is pressing on you to persevere with in a gritty relationship? Is there, huh? This, friends, this is a test. It's a test. Ruth passed it. Will you? Hope so. Secondly, she risks in what we'll call godly realism. Godly realism, what do I mean? Well, this. Ruth, by the way, was an immigrant. And every immigrant I've ever met, and understandably so, goes in search of a better life or a better prospect or a better job situation. But Ruth has none. No prospect for any betterment. She goes back with no prospect. Matter of fact, it could break very bad for her. And we see this acknowledged through what both Boaz and Naomi say to her. When Ruth goes out to glean grain in Boaz's field, which, by the way, was the right of all the poor people in that day, God had commanded landowners and business owners not to reap all their grain, not to maximize their profits to the uttermost and neglect the poor. But God had commanded landowners to leave some potential profit on the table for the poor, see. And Ruth goes to glean this surplus grain. When Boaz meets her there, we get an idea of the kind of danger she was in through what he and Naomi say to her. This is what they say. Boaz says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't, don't go and glean another field and don't, don't go away from here. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And later, Naomi says, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Now, why would they say these things? Well, Ruth was not just a widow with no one to protect her. She was a Moabitess, an immigrant, a cultural and racial outsider. And during that time in Israel's history, there was great conflict between Israel and Moab. And the people of Israel hated Moab for how Moab had oppressed them over the years. And even the sight of a Moabite was enough to risk an altercation in the open. And so Boaz has to not just order his men to leave her alone, but this phrase where he says to lay a hand on is a Hebrew euphemism for sex. In other words, Boaz is ordering his men, has to order them not to rape her, not to rape her. Ruth has been taking her life in her own hands to follow through on her commitment to serve God and love her friend. She realizes that following God will require risk. Do you? 
to you. Ruth is unlike any immigrant I've ever met. But not only is she unlike most immigrants, she is also unlike many Christians. Because many Christians, especially in our nation, you know this, say, God, I'll follow you. Right? I'll go where you go. Your people will be my people. Until they offend me. And then I'm out. Right? Right? God, I'll go where you want me to go. But when it gets right down to it, God, it's just, it's my life. Break up with my boyfriend. You know, I'm, I'm 19 and he's the only guy in the world, right? God, it's too much risk. Uh, God, financially give. God, it's my money. I got to provide for my kids for college. Serve as an usher. You know, help in children's ministry. Be involved with the community. God, you're going too far. I can't risk that, see. Now, what do you think Ruth would have to say to all of our objections? Ruth's got a godly realism to her. She knows that following God may just cost her everything. See, she risks it all. She puts it all on the line for the friends she loves and the God she serves. And in the end, what does she do? Oh, she changes the world. So let's turn the question around and ask it of ourselves. How can we do the same? Well, we can do the same this morning if you'll see number three, finally, what we'll call redemption's hiddenness. Redemption's hiddenness. You say, well, what's that? Well, I'll set it up with this question. May I suggest that most of us wrongly determine how we know whether or not God is working in our lives. Most of us think this. We think, I would know that God's at work in my life, and I would be able to trust him. I'd be able to risk like Ruth if I could just see something miraculous, right? If I could saw something spectacular, I would know he's at work. Listen. Sometimes God does do miraculous things, and I've been privileged to become a Christian through an overt display of God's supernatural power. I've had a literal and physical healing miracle in my body. I've prayed for many people who have been healed. And listen, we want to encourage an atmosphere of faith and trust God for miracles and healings in our midst. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. Sorry if that's news to you. They just are. And we're going to desire to express those and experience those. But are miracles the only way to know whether or not God's at work? Look here at the book of Ruth. In contrast to almost every book in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Kings, Jonah, Daniel, the list goes on, we see seas parted, fire from heaven, angels visiting, leading armies, you know, dreams at night, you know, revelations. But there is no overt miracle here, no rescue, no visitation. And that's the point. That's the point. No fire, no vision. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the book, we see God has totally redeemed Naomi's family. How? Oh, through his work. In ordinary, everyday circumstances. You know that field Ruth just happened to go in? That's what the text tells us. Oh, it just happened to belong to the person in Bethlehem who could redeem her family. See, just happened. Oh, let me tell you something. The book of Ruth tells us, it forces us to see today, there is no such thing in your life as just happened. No such thing. You say, well, God isn't at work in my life, Morgan. I, I can't see him right now. I don't feel him right now. Let me ask you, how would you know? How would you know whether he's at work or not? See, most of the discouragement we feel, I know I feel, because we, like Naomi, And this is a hard truth, I realize. We think we know best how our lives ought to be going. See, we've got agendas, right? Agendas. When she returns to Bethlehem, what does Naomi say? She says, don't call me Naomi. It's a word that her name means pleasant. She says, call me Mara. It means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. 
And some of you, I realize, you may feel like Naomi this morning. Bitter, right? Empty. Full before. Empty now a shell. But get this. Can you see this? At the moment she says this, at the moment she declares her bitterness of soul, her resentment of God, at the exact second she swears she's got nothing and God cannot be at work in her life, who is standing next to her? Oh, it's Ruth, right? Her friend. Ruth's got to be saying, you got nothing? I mean, who am I? You know, last, yesterday's leftovers, you know. Naomi couldn't see the redeemer of her life hidden right under her nose because her redemption was hidden to her because of her agenda. Naomi was saying, God, I don't like my life right now. I don't like how I feel. Therefore, God, you cannot be at work. So let's ask, was God at work? Oh, yes. And it was greater greater than Naomi could have ever known. In the final scene of the book, which we read, we see that Boaz, because he's fallen in love with Ruth, he's given up his own name, laid aside his family fortune to redeem and buy back the name and family of Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth, becomes her loving and mighty bridegroom, her kinsman redeemer, and now Ruth has a child. And Naomi's last scene here in the book, the very one who said, I'm bitter, I'm empty. Now, what's happened to her? She's become full and whole. And as she holds her grandson on her knee, again the women of the town gather around her one last time and they say this. And the book comes to a close, not only with a celebration of joy, but with one of the greatest twists in all the Bible. See if you can catch it. They say to Naomi, they say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons says what given him birth but wait you see you begin the sentence thinking they're talking about Boaz but by the end you realize they can't be in it almost every commentator acknowledges acknowledges this they say look at verse 15 where it says Ruth is given birth to the redeemer not just that Boaz is the redeemer listen this is an intentional twist it's a little phrase telling you that the narrator sees something else going on providentially. It's saying that ultimately the child is the Goel. The child is the Redeemer. Ruth has given birth to him. And so we say, what's this talking about? Oh, what this is talking about is really what the story of Ruth is all about. You see, this story takes place during the time of the judges, a time as we saw last week, where every person did what was right in their own eyes. There was rape, genocide, a brutal darkness had fallen over the land. God had called Israel, his nation, his people, to be a light to the nations. But that light was about to go out now. Oh, and here at the end of the book of Ruth, the curtain of history is being drawn back to show what God had been doing all along in his people's life and history, working out a hidden plan for a child to be born. Where? Oh, in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, to the most unlikely of women, who though she did not know it was now the carrier of the seed, not just of a coming judge, but of a coming king, a coming redeemer. And Ruth's child, we read, would become the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David, who himself is a pointer to another king, the king of kings, who would also be born in Bethlehem one day to an unlikely outcast of a mother. Oh, God is saying to you and me, us today, in the book of Ruth, I can and I will be a light for you when all other lights go out. I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. I am working behind the scenes of the curtain of your life. God is saying, I've got a hidden redeemer moving into your life. It's coming into the world. And when he comes, oh, he won't come in a display of power. He'll come 
in a display of weakness and hiddenness. You say, well, who's that? How can we see him? Like this. Centuries later, another Boaz would come, another great and mighty bridegroom who gave up all his wealth to buy back a bride and give her his inheritance like Boaz. He not only pays your debt, but then he reaches out to you and unites with you so that all his wealth becomes yours. And like Boaz was, the Naomi's family, Jesus is our flesh and blood. He became human, our kinsman. Jesus, in the end, fulfilled what we never could, the law of God that demands a redeemer for us to go free. Jesus is the true and greater Boaz. But even more beautifully, centuries later, there would also be another Ruth, a greater Ruth, a suffering servant who would lay down his life to rescue out of poverty those he loved. He left his father's home in heaven, became an alien, an immigrant, oh, to the very planet he made, and he suffered outside the gate of his own city. And when he came, Jesus didn't say, may God deal with me if anything but death separates us. No, he said, God is going to judge me, not for what I've done, but for what you've done. And because I've been judged, now death can never separate us. And I have been parted from you so that you can never be parted from me, see. And like Ruth, whose name literally means friendship, the greater Ruth has shown us that greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for his friend. Oh, there's one this morning who's come and laid his life down that you could be his friend. Do you believe that? There's been someone actively working to redeem your life. If you'll see it, both a mighty bridegroom and a suffering servant who has said, where you go, my child, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll always stay. I will never leave you nor forsake you. A redeemer who said, oh, I'll make your people my people so that now my God can be your God. That's the greater Boaz. How, if you see that, if that melts your heart, if that touches you today, how do you respond? Do you say what Ruth said to Boaz? You say, oh, now, spread the corner of your garment over me. It's a love proposal, a marriage proposal. See, it's a covenant request. Spread the corner of your garment, your covering. See, Boaz, I'm asking Boaz, the greater Boaz, for what you have to become mine. And that's how we approach God. And that's what he gives to us to the greater Ruth and Boaz, Jesus. It's yours today. Come and get it. Lord, we come now in Jesus' name. Hearts drawn up into who you are. In worship, seeing who you've been to us. And Lord, I'm praying for every person in here, Lord, who's wrestling with hopelessness, struggling with bitterness of soul, they would see how you've been working. Oh, you're not silent. You're speaking today through your spirit through your son, Jesus. Would you meet us now this morning? If you're here today and you say, you know what, I, oh, I've been struggling. I'm struggling with the bitterness of soul and an emptiness of heart. And I want, I need God to meet me today. Would you raise your hand? I'm gonna pray for you, yeah. Lord, would you draw back the curtains of our lives? No matter what scene we're in and show us how you've been working. Oh, we get the benefit of a compacted story here. Sometimes these things take years and decades to work out. But Lord, I'm praying now that we would hook our hearts onto your greater story, your plot line of redemption. Allow us to see you're working to redeem each one of us. If we'll just allow you in. Just open our hearts to you today. Thank you for that, for these. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I've just got a friendship, I've got a relationship, it's 
I know God's calling me to persevere in it, even though I'm getting nothing out of it. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Listen, we all have this at some points. My encouragement to you is that sometimes those will actually become your closest friend in the end. If you'll push past the difficulty. Lord, I'm praying for grace for these. To look at the gospel that have humility of heart. We'd all move out into this church and in relationships looking to give. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.